Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 542 for the 7th of May, 2017. This week, under the guise of providing a look behind the scenes at TechBiter, I found a way to play with some of the Adobe Audition features that don't get used on the podcast. In short circuits, we'll take a look at three separate frauds, a phony message that claims to be from Facebook but wants me to visit a website in Russia, a ploy that's made to appear to be from Bluehost and wants only to steal my username and password, and a phony invitation to Google Docs. Microsoft seems to be competing with both high-end and low-end hardware manufacturers these days. In spare parts, only on the website, Microsoft says that the Windows 10 browser, Edge, is the best browser ever, but some security experts disagree. IBM says it accidentally sent USB drives that were infected with malware to StoreWise customers. And the adoption rate for Windows 10 is increasing in enterprises, but many IT departments are still dragging their heels. When television was still relatively new, Programs occasionally turned their cameras around and let viewers see what was going on behind the scenes. On the rare occasions when this was done, I was fascinated. So today we'll consider some of what happens behind the scenes here. Fortunately, though, there is no video. What made these behind-the-scenes visits so remarkable in retrospect was the equipment used. All video cameras were huge and had to be mounted on an even larger pedestal. Houston Fearless was one of the primary manufacturers, and the combined gear of the camera and the pedestal could weigh 400 pounds or more. The camera was trailed by a huge cable. So the idea of just wheeling the camera out of the air studio and into the control room had to be somewhat daunting. But they did it. The primary tool used to create TechBiter Worldwide Podcasts is Adobe Audition, so going behind the scenes isn't at all daunting, and no heavy lifting is involved. Adobe acquired Cool Edit Pro from Centrillium Software in 2003, and it was the basis for what is today Audition. There are two primary interfaces, Wave and Multitrack. The Wave Editor is used to edit a single file, for example, a narration track or an interview. The multi-track editor is used, as you've probably already figured out, to combine multiple tracks. For example, opening and closing themes, narration tracks, various musical bumpers, and additional sounds that are all used in the final program. But those are the routinely used tools. And the headline on this promises audition magic rarely heard on TechBiter. In other words, this was mainly my excuse to play with some of the features that I never get to touch normally. So please indulge me, and I hope you find this worthwhile, or at least amusing, and maybe even entertaining. As an old radio guy, and I'm not sure whether the emphasis there should be on old or radio, 
What amazes me about audition is the fact that much of what can be done now with relative ease would have been impossible without a digital audio workstation. I'll demonstrate a few bits of magic in the next few minutes, and only one of them would have been possible in the old days, and then only if the radio station had some sophisticated equipment that the engineers would allow the common folks to use. I'll tell you which one after we've heard them all. Audition's two methods of displaying sound are essential to finding and repairing problems. One display shows the relative loudness of the sound. That's the view most people will recognize as representing sound because it's the display that you see on television programs or motion pictures when they're showing somebody editing sound. The other display shows the frequencies vertically and represents louder sounds with brighter colors. I think of this as being somewhat similar to the histogram in photographic applications such as Lightroom and Photoshop. Audition can fix a lot of problems, many more than I have time to talk about, so we'll take a look and a listen to some of the most common audio problems. Sometimes an audio track will have pops and clicks. These sounds are often high-energy annoyances that span a wide range of frequencies. Audition's healing brush is similar to Photoshop's healing brush, except for sound, and that may seem illogical, but remember that both sounds and images are really just data, as far as the computer is concerned. Techniques that can be used to clear a blotch on somebody's face can be applied to eliminating a click in an audio file. Yeah, I'm sure it's not as easy as just repurposing code from one application to another, but the concept is the same, or at least it's similar. Take a listen to these before and after recordings with some pops and clicks. Let's see if we can remove the clicks and pops from this recording. Let's see if we can remove the clicks and pops from this recording. Another common problem involves a constant noise that occurs throughout the recording. For example, a low frequency hum, usually 60 hertz, or an air conditioner that can create a rumble. Identifying the noise, such as something from an air conditioner, is most suited to the standard waveform display. The area at the beginning and end of the track, where there's typically no speech, is usually where you go to find the hum. If you're familiar with noise-canceling headphones that can eliminate the sound of jet engines on an airplane, you understand the concept. The headphones identify continuous sound and then attenuate the appropriate frequencies. With Audition, the user is responsible for showing the program a clear sample of the noise. After that, Audition takes over and removes it. Here we go, before and after recordings. This is the sound of a recording made in a room where air conditioner noise is overpowering. This is the sound of a recording made in a room where air conditioner noise is overpowering. Phones can be a problem too, cell phones or regular phones. During an interview, a phone may ring in the distance if the phone is too close to the microphone, there's really not much that can be done. But a phone that's across the room can usually be tamed. Unlike clicks and pops, though, ringing phones have substantial duration. And unlike the hum of an air conditioner, ringing phones aren't continuous. Eliminating a sound like this requires a different kind of tool. The ringing phone creates several short bursts of sound, and these bursts occur in several frequency ranges. The phone used in the illustration you'll hear, and that you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, is particularly obnoxious because it covers such a wide expanse of the audio spectrum. 
Removing this much information does degrade the voice, but only slightly. Some additional techniques or more care in selecting the exact frequencies to remove could be used to improve the voice. Even so, the track sounds a lot better without that ringing phone and without any additional work to clean it up further. Here we go, before and after recordings again. There's a telephone ringing in the background. It's not very loud, but it's annoying. There's a telephone ringing in the background. It's not very loud, but it's annoying. So which of these do you think would have been possible in the old days with analog gear? It might have been possible to remove the air conditioner noise with a notch filter, but few stations had them. And even the best notch filter was more a bludgeon than a scalpel. Removing the hum would also have removed a significant amount of essential parts of the signal, and the result would probably have sounded more like something that came over a telephone wire. We've come a long way, just as we have in text, photo, and video processing. What once would have seemed like magic is now commonplace. There is one kind of sound that seems to be impervious to all repair attempts, though. A meowing cat or a barking dog. The sounds can be loud, irregular, cover a wide range of frequencies, and change in pitch and modulation. So if you're interrupted by a dog, or as I sometimes am by a cat, about all you can do is just stop, satisfy the dog or the cat, and then record it again. Sometimes length is a problem, too. The audio you have might be too short or too long. Unlike on radio, TechBiter doesn't have to begin or end at any specific time or be any particular length. But broadcast presentations are time-sensitive. If a commercial is supposed to be 30 seconds or 60 seconds, it needs to be 30 seconds or 60 seconds with very little leeway, maybe a second or two, depending on the professional standards of the station. For example, let's say you have a tagline that cannot be any longer than 8 seconds, but the person recording the audio can't do it in less than 12 and a half. Audition comes to the rescue. An audio clip can be accelerated or slowed by 20% or sometimes even more than that without having a detrimental or even noticeable effect on the sound. And Audition can do that without making the person sound like a chipmunk. So in the next recording, we'll hear the original sound, 14.4 seconds, an 8-second version, that's shrunk to 64%, and that becomes objectionably fast. But if you can talk the producer into giving you just another two seconds, there's a 10-second version that's really pretty good. So you'll hear them in this order, the longest, the shortest, the 8-second one, and then the 10-second version that would be usable. This tagline must fit in an 8-second space, but it cannot be edited, and unfortunately it will be longer than 10 seconds. For that reason, it must be reduced. This tagline must fit in an 8-second space, but it cannot be edited, and unfortunately it will be longer than 10 seconds. For that reason, it must be reduced. This tagline must fit in an 8-second space, but it cannot be edited, and unfortunately it will be longer than 10 seconds. For that reason, it must be reduced. Conversely, it's possible to maintain the length of a clip while raising or lowering the pitch. In fact, you hear the lowered pitch at the beginning of each podcast. Yep. That's really just little old me. TechBiter Worldwide. So there you go, kind of a listen behind the scenes. There are lots of other tools in the box too, some of which I've never used, and some of which would be pretty difficult to illustrate. 
When the most recent version of Audition was pushed out to Creative Cloud users, it came with some new educational links covering topics such as the basics, creating a podcast, and reducing noise. This is a good start on making the program accessible to those who have never worked in radio, television, or motion picture production. In other words, most of us. And there's a new link in the Help menu. The link leads to more than 10,000 sound effects and thousands of music tracks that can be downloaded and used without additional charge. A new section called Sound Booth Scores is shown as coming soon. One thing is clear, though. If you're, if you're looking, looking for a way to modify a recorded sound, Audition probably has what, what you need. In short circuits, fraudsters continue to fine-tune their tricks, and this week I found two efforts that probably fooled quite a few people. Let's take a look at them and see what reveals their fraudulent nature. You'll see images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I start with a message that claims to be from Facebook. It says that I have notifications pending, specifically for friend request. And those are the first two clues that this is a fraud. First, Facebook doesn't send out these kinds of notices, but then again, Facebook is constantly changing, and their motto is move fast and break things, so you might conclude that this is something new and legitimately from Facebook. But then there's the second clue. It's ungrammatical. The number four indicates a plural, needs to be followed by a plural verb, not a singular verb. Another clue? The greeting is just hi. So that's clue number three. Nearly all legitimate businesses now include your name in the text. Not your email address, but your name, the way you registered at the site. Not just, hi. And if I needed another clue, I could get that by hovering my mouse over the proposed link to find that its target is a Russian website. Now, this is annoying, but probably not dangerous. After all, not all Russian sites want to affect elections in other countries. This one, based solely on its name, the Meds Market, probably just wants to sell me some cheap knockoff Viagra. No sale, guys, and proschai draki. And then there was a message that pretended to be from Bluehost a website hosting service in Orem, Utah. It is the hosting service I use for TechBiter Worldwide, and it claimed that spam was being sent from the site. Oh my, I had 24 hours to contact them or they would shut the site down. Well, I knew I hadn't been sending spam, so an examination of the message seemed reasonable, and determining it was a fraud took only a few seconds. There's a very long URL in plain text in the message. That's something you learn not to do in Fraud 101. Apparently whoever created this one skipped that class. A competent scammer would have hidden the real URL behind a false front, but this mistake at least saved some time for me. What they wanted me to see was Bluehost.com, that's near the front of the link, but the important bits are near the end. The real target domain is test-hf.su. And although the Soviet Union no longer exists, 
the old SU top-level domain still does. The other obvious clue is the phone number. The scammer apparently doesn't know that in the U.S. telecommunications system, no exchange can begin with one, so 888-143-3365 is clearly fake. Had I needed any additional proof, I could have examined the message's routing information in the header, which made it clear that the email had originated in Russia, not in Utah. You don't have to be a genius to outsmart most of these crooks. Just pay attention to the clues they leave in plain sight. And I promised a third item. Well, here it is. What would you do if you received an invitation from somebody you didn't know to edit a file stored in Google Docs? The right answer to that would be ignore it. But what if the message came from somebody you know? In that case, the right answer would simply be to ask a lot of questions. Has this person ever sent a file to you to edit previously? Are you expecting one? Does any of the text accompanying the link sound like the person who appears to have sent it? Google claims to have disabled all of the accounts that were sending bogus messages like these. The messages attempt to steal login credentials. In addition to disabling the accounts, Google removed the fake pages and pushed updates out to users. The company says that the attack affected fewer than one-tenth of one percent of Gmail users. But given the number of Gmail users, even one-tenth of one percent would be a huge number. Google says its investigation showed that no other data was exposed. There's no further action users need to take regarding this event, Google said. Users who want to review third-party apps connected to their account can visit the Google Security Checkup. Remember when Microsoft was a software company? Starting with DOS as an operating system and then Windows. Remember Multiplan, the spreadsheet program that was a competitor for VisiCalc in the early 1980s? Then came Excel, Word, Access, PowerPoint, and all the others. But now, Microsoft is concentrating on hardware. In mid-June, Microsoft will start shipping the new Surface laptop, starting price $1,000, or in Microsoft speak, $999. And the target audience is those who might be considering a MacBook Pro, the least expensive of those, $1,100. But wait, the computer runs a special version of Windows 10 called Windows 10 S. I'll leave it up to you to decide what that S stands for. This version of Windows will run only applications that are downloaded from the Windows Store. So is Microsoft trying to compete with Apple's MacBooks or Google's Chromebooks? Apparently, the real market is schools and students. If the computer can run only applications from the Microsoft Store, students can't download and install unapproved applications. Microsoft will make it possible, though, for teachers to upgrade the systems from Windows 10 S to Windows 10 Pro so that non-store applications can be installed. The Windows 10 S machines boot in about 15 seconds. They have a 3 to 2 aspect ratio touch-enabled screen. These devices weigh less than 3 pounds and vary from about 10 millimeters to 15 millimeters thick. Microsoft says the battery life will allow the computer to run all day. The specified battery life is more than 14 hours. But just like EPA mileage figures, 
it's wise to assume that your results will be lower. Manufacturers of Windows systems seem to be planning to compete with Chromebooks too. Acer, Asus, Dell, Fujitsu, HP, Samsung, and Toshiba all will release machines in the sub $200 range in the next few months. They have low-end processors, limited RAM, and minimal storage. You don't need any storage at all for spare parts, because it's only on the website. This week, Microsoft says that the Windows 10 browser Edge is the best browser ever. Some security experts disagree. IBM says that it accidentally sent USB drives that were infected with malware to StoreWise customers. And the adoption rate for Windows 10 is increasing in enterprises, but many IT departments are still dragging their heels. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.